As Sam was saying, the Bible forms such a deep part of our faith, and so tonight's reading is coming from Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. You can follow it along in your bulletin, your Bible, on the screen, wherever. So Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thanks, Amy. My name is John Forsyth. I have the great privilege of being the vicar, which is just a fancy way of saying senior minister, or old minister, as some people say these days, uh, at St Jude's. And we have before us a really amazing part of Scripture. I know all parts of Scripture are amazing, but if you were to pick a passage to help you understand who Jesus is, whether, you, whether you're not a Christian and you've kind of come to church for the first time or you've been a, a Christian for many, many years, it's really hard to think of a better passage than the one we have before us in chapter 2. And secondly, it is really, really hard not to make this sermon uh, any, any longer than one hour. So I've done my best to not make it longer than an hour. That's the good news. It, it'll be definitely shorter than an hour, uh, just, but we'll get there. Because there is such a, a rich picture of who Jesus is, uh, and a very helpful picture uh, as uh, has been mentioned, we're looking actually at the book of Hebrews with the subtitle, Better, uh, and we're at week three, uh, already at week three of this series, and one of the, the kind of interesting things about the letter of the Hebrews is we don't know exactly who wrote it, the author is unnamed, I think it might be Barnabas, but you can ask me later why I think that's the case, uh, we don't know exactly who it's written to, but we know a bit about who it's written to as you read through the whole letter. What you know is it's most likely written to a bunch of urban Christians with a Jewish heritage. Urban Christians, well, why urban? Well, all the way through the letter, there are all these references to city. In fact, 
it has the most references to city than any of the letters in the New Testament. Uh, why Jewish background? Well, all of these images uh, and things that the author refers to are deeply part uh, of the Jewish religious tradition and culture. Uh, and there'd be things that you wouldn't refer to unless the people you're writing to understood what's going on. So it's more likely to be uh, a people with a very strong Jewish heritage. It's also clear that they, they're living in a pluralistic society. What I mean by that is there are lots and lots of different religions and groups and beliefs in the city that they're living in. It's multicultural, multinational, multi-religious. And as a result, being a Christian in whatever city these guys are in is not the easiest place to be. There's a sense in which they're genuinely marginalised and they're facing hostility and even suffering for being a Christian. Once again, we know that by just the language used and the encouragement given in the letter. And as we go through the letter, we can see that the kind of big question that this letter is seeking to address is this. How do you live as a Christian when life is challenging and different and hard? How do you persevere when being a Christian is not popular? When the temptation is to give in or give up? And being a Christian is not trending in the right direction on Twitter. When friends and family think you're crazy for being a Christian. And I think that's an incredibly relevant and modern question. Even though it's written to these Christians thousands of years ago, it's a question. We live in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, different faiths, beliefs, none. And it's increasingly perhaps more difficult to be a Christian. How do you survive? And we actually have the answer. So you could say, John, this is going to be the shortest sermon ever. The answer is this. You persevere by fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's the big message of Hebrews. That's how you get through. Whether you've just moved to Melbourne and you're thinking, how am I going to survive in this crazy city where the weather changes every five minutes, right? How am I going to cope? I'm perhaps away from home for the first time. I don't know anybody. I feel isolated and alone. I feel the challenges of a new culture and perhaps a new language. Once again, you fix your eyes on Jesus. And as a church, we're here to help you do that as we do that together. And what Hebrews does as the author opens up is helps us see who this Jesus is that we are meant to fix our eyes upon to show the beauty and the glory of Jesus and say, this is why we keep looking to Jesus above all things. And as we open the letter, there is this astonishing picture of Jesus, and I've called it the infinite glory of Christ. We read that he's the heir of all things, he's the, sorry, the, the, and the co-creator, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the sustainer of the universe, the source of salvation of our sins, uh, from our sins, and reigning with the Father at his right hand. This, this kind of poetic and, and theological language builds this huge picture of Christ, which in some ways can feel a bit hard to grapple with. So what I've done is I've kind of going to try and use an analogy to help us just get a small glimpse into the glory of Christ, and it involves paper. 
Now, I've done two things to make this really easy. First of all, if you don't, because you guys never use paper anymore, you're all on your eye devices, right? Paper's just an old, old, old person's thing. I've got a picture of paper behind me, right? If you, if you can't imagine. Secondly, we've given you a bit of paper. This is for you kinesthetic learners, right? For you visual learners, kinesthetic learners. And what I want you to imagine is that the distance between the Earth and the Sun, if that was reduced in scale to the, the width, the thickness of a piece of paper, okay? You with me so far? Okay. That's the distance between Earth and the Sun. Now, the distance between our Earth and the next star, because the, the, the Sun's a star, right? We all we learnt that trick as a kid. How high is the stack of paper? Do you think? Now, I'm, I'm willing for you to show off your super nerdness here uh, or have a wild guess, and there's no, there'll be no external judgment. It'll all be internal if you get it wrong. It's okay. <laughs> Does anyone feel game enough to have a step for you? If you've heard this sermon before, no points for you. Uh, here we go. 22 metres worth of paper. That's how high you're stacking it. To get to the next nearest star. Now, the diameter of, our, of the Milky Way, our own galaxy, guess how high your stack of paper is now. Hint, it's more than 22 metres. Anyone feeling lucky about a guess? I'm hearing vague mumblings in this corner here. It could just be vague mumblings. Is that, is that a guess? Is someone, or is just someone just scratching themselves? Ming's just saying a long way up. Yes, you're right, Ming. Uh, 500 kilometres high. That is exactly right. That is how high the stack of paper is now, just for our Milky Way. The nearest next galaxy from here, how high is your stack of paper now? 10,000 kilometres high. The guesstimate, and it is genuinely a guesstimate, size of the known universe, how, how big is our stack of paper now? 50 million kilometres high, which is about a third of the way to the sun, which means the other end starting to catch fire. That's, that's how big this stack is. Now, if there is a person who has created all this and holds this together through the power of his word, is this the kind of person that you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? to fit into your schedule as long as you're not too busy and as long as there aren't too many challenges. There are bits that you can take and bits you can leave. The point the author to the Hebrews is making is that Jesus is superior and so is his word. Now, when I preached the passage we looked at last week, last week over at Parkville, another one of our campuses, uh, a woman came up to me after my sermon and said, look, John, if that's true, if God's word is true, then the gap between Jesus and me is too big. I, I can't relate to Jesus. He is astonishingly transcendent, which just means transcendent, beyond me, other, distant. I am completely insignificant. I do not even rate a single sheet of paper. How on earth can I relate to Jesus? And I did what every good minister, priest does when they receive a question. I said, first of all, great question. For two reasons. Firstly, it actually was a great question. 
And secondly, when you don't know the answer, you say great question to give you some thinking time. Right? I'm just I'm revealing the tricks here. Sam, Sam and I are revealing tricks that we do, right? Great question. And I did the second thing which all good ministers do, which is come back next week for the answer. Now, that wasn't just to fob her off uh, because I wasn't preaching at Parkville this week. It's because the very next section of Hebrews addresses this. This challenge of how, of, of the glory of Christ, which is so incomprehensible and, and in one unreliable, how can I fix my eyes on that Jesus? It's, it's so beyond me. And the answer is this. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus because not only is he the glorious son of God, terrifying and infinite, he is at the same time intimately close. Intimately close. Indeed, he has become one of us. He shares our humanity. Infinite in glory and at the same time, infinitely close in his incarnation. And it's crucial that both of those things are true. If only one of those things is true or one of those things is partly true, then we are not to look at it. It's impossible for us to, to, to even look on our, our eyes to Christ. Either he's not worthy of it or it's so far beyond us that it does us no good. And so what we see is the author to the Hebrews starts with this glorious picture of Christ and then moves us through showing us how Jesus shares our humanity and why that is so important and encouraging as we lift our eyes to him. And so he goes through, as you've read the passage just then, how often he emphasises that point. And he starts in this, our section of chapter 2, by quoting Psalm 8. And I love, what I love about the author of the Hebrews is, he just says this, oh, there's a place where someone has, someone's written this somewhere, it's the vibe, right? It kind of, I can relate to that kind of forgetting where things come from in the Bible. And what he does is he uses Psalm 8 poetically to tell us about the reality that Jesus has become flesh. He's using an Old Testament psalm, and he's saying this psalm actually points to this fact. And he's just picked a bit of the psalm. So we read there, in continuing in verse 6, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? Now, that little phrase, a son of man, is, there's kind of a little bit going on with just that little phrase. We need to understand what's going on. Generally, in the Old Testament, the bit written, you know, before Jesus, the phrase, a son of man, is just saying human. That's all it means. Average Joe. Human being. And what the author is doing here is using this passage to describe Jesus as the one who represents humanity. Ordinary human beings. Ordinary, and the word son of man, it's, it's a generic term for men and women in that culture. It's a bit, it's a similar, if you know uh, your Bible a little better, uh, how Paul refers to Jesus as a second Adam. It's, it's that kind of idea. But there's also something else going on. It's very clever what the author is doing here. In the Gospels, if you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that Jesus often refers to himself in the third person as the Son of Man. 
It's often a phrase he uses to himself. And what is there? He's pointing to this, this amazing character that's kind of hinted at and prophesied at in the Old Testament, in places like uh, uh, Daniel 7, of this son of man who will be God's future king, this Messiah who will signal kind of the coming of God's judgment and the restoration of God's people. So he managed to capture those complicated things just by using this beautiful poetry from Psalm 8. Notice then in verse 7 it says, uh, you made them a little lower than the angels, or perhaps you could translate that a little, for a little while lower than the angels. Once again, it's, it's a poetic way of saying being made human. In the kind of their cosmology, the heavens are up here, which is God and his angels, and the earth is down here with people. So he's made lower than the angels. Now, by the way, just previously he said Jesus is superior to the angels. That was the, the previous part of Hebrews. And he's, he's kind of got this thing for angels. Have you noticed that he kind of keeps focusing on angels? It's, it's kind of it's his hobby. And by the way, just, just a little aside, angels are, are not those cute baby things with wings and bows and arrows. Now, you may have received uh, a Valentine's Day card in the last week. Maybe, I don't, um, I don't know. But maybe it had a little cute uh, Cupid. You know, the fat baby shooting a... I don't, that's nothing to do with angels. Just be very clear. Uh, when angels come and meet people on this earth, what is the first thing they always say to them? Do not be afraid. It's on their business card. It says, angel of the Lord, do not be afraid. Why do they do that? Because they're terrifying, right? It's not something you say if you're a cute fat baby with a bow and arrow. They are the messengers of God. And there are other angels who actually, who actually abide in the throne room of God, singing holy, holy, holy. So they're quite significant and amazing spiritual beings. We've known that Jesus is superior, but now he's been met lower. He's now a human being. But now it says, you crown them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In other words, Jesus is now exalted. Exalted to glory at the Father's right hand. It's a position of power and authority. And that little phrase, under his feet, uh, it, it's an ancient practice. When you won a war or a battle, what you would literally do is you would get your, the person you'd beat to lie down in front of everybody, and you would place your foot on their neck as a way of saying, hey, I've won. It's a bit of a flex, right? It's the ancient, ancient flex, an ancient mic drop. It was the ancient, under my foot, I rule you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. But what's one of the most amazing things is why Jesus is victorious? Why he's crowned with glory? Why is Jesus able to do the ancient history mic drop? Have a look at verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because... What's the reason? How is he crowned? Why is he crowned with glory and honour? Because he suffered death. He suffered death so that by the grace of God, the free gift of God, he might taste death for everyone. Can you see how the whole purpose and direction of Jesus becoming human, just like you and me, is ultimately so that he can die for us? That's the story and direction of Jesus becoming flesh. He became like us so he could die for us and is now raised and rules over us. That's, th that's the great story of the gospel, the good news. 
that God in his grace has done these things. And then what the author of the Hebrews done is he, he then gives us three really important implications about this fact, about the fact that the glorious Jesus has become flesh. Uh, and we'll look at those three. One is that he becomes the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. The second is that he's defeated the power of death. And the third is that he becomes our great high priest. So we look at those uh, as we go through the Bible text together. So the first implication is, this means, therefore, that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. This is verses 10 to 13. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter. I think there's a slide even for this one, perhaps. There it is, the helicopter. Fantastic. Verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now first notice that here Jesus is referred to as the pioneer of our salvation. You might know that translation also could mean author of our salvation and sometimes different translations of the Bible will choose that word over the other. It's the same thing. An author or a pioneer is the one who does the work. The one, in this case, who does the rescue, the salvation. It is his work from beginning to end. When you're being rescued by the helicopter, the helicopter and the guys coming down, they're doing the work. They're the pioneers. They're the authors of your salvation. What about the next bit? What does it mean that Jesus should be made perfect through what he suffered? It's a rather strange little phrase, isn't it? Doesn't mean, perhaps, that Jesus wasn't perfect. Right? That's, that sounds a bit like what the guy's saying. Now, the answer is no, 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 Jesus is perfect. We need to understand what the word perfect means. In this context, the word perfect means to complete something completely, if that makes sense, perfectly. So there's a problem, it's solved. There's a foundation, it's built upon there's a promise. It's been fulfilled. It's been perfected. There is nothing left to do. It's finished. That's what, that's what the, the kind of language means. And once again in chapter 5, verse 9 and seven twenty-eight, he'll use this idea of perfected again. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, the ultimate purpose of God in sending Jesus was that Jesus would become the heavenly and glorified and resurrected, all-conquering Christ and Saviour. That's the mission. And to achieve this mission, for it to be perfected, Jesus had to go through suffering. The suffering of becoming human and the disgraceful execution upon a cross. That's the means by which God's mission in Jesus is fulfilled. It's crucial to it. And notice the astonishing result of this is that we are made holy and belong to God's family. Now, the idea of holy is uh, obviously a religious word. What it means is to be set apart for a special purpose. In this case, for God's special purpose. Now, maybe in, in your family there are special uh, items that are worn for special occasions or perhaps special food that is cooked for special people. So when I, when I turn up at your house, 
you, you don't cook the everyday food, you cook the special food, because the vicar's turning up, right? That's the holy food set apart for special events. The best two-minute noodles in the house. This is what we have set aside for you, John. It's the holy noodles, not the everyday two-minute noodles. That's the idea of being holy, set apart for a special occasion, for a special purpose. And God says, we are made holy. We are set apart amazingly for God's special purpose. That's you if you follow Jesus. And to it, notice he says that we then belong to Jesus' family. We are Jesus' brothers and sisters. In other words, church is a gathering together of family. We are brothers and sisters. Now, I've got a, a large number of cousins. I have 24 cousins, of which four are on my dad's side and 20 are on my mum's side. And when I used to live back in Sydney, we would sometimes host family Christmas with 20 cousins and then whatever, the, another 12 uncles and aunts and animals and all kinds of chaos going on. And look, I love my family, but they are a bit awkward. Can I say that just quietly? Uh, they would, after, after the Christmas lunch, um, first of all, they kept the paper hats on which had come out of the, the Christmas crackers. I, I, no one's dignified in those hats, let's just be honest. They don't dignify anyone. I know that it's fun, uh, but they would keep them on long beyond the point of dignity. Uh, and then my uncles and aunts particularly, who should have known better because they were the adults, would perform musical numbers uh, all together for the rest of us to, and I used air, air quotes advisedly, enjoy at that point. And there were duets and singing and, look, I love musical theatre, don't get me wrong, but this was down more the amateur side. And my uncle, who, he, I love the guy, but he's a bit awkward, he, he somehow would always have a baton on him, just on his person, day or night, and he would pull it out and start conducting the family the adults in the family, as the children kind of did the eye roll. You might have parents like that. Uh, you might know people like that. In other words, that, it's a bit awkward. We didn't want to talk about it. Now I've had some, you know, we can talk about it publicly now. But, you know, it's... And there can be times too in your family, maybe if there's even more serious reasons why you don't want to talk about your family. That there's pain or suffering or you're just embarrassed by them. But have a look at verse 11 Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Listen to this. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Not ashamed. Not just we're Jesus' brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. Do you hear what the author's saying there? If you are a follower of Jesus, he looks at you and he says, I am proud, I am not ashamed that you are my brother. I am not ashamed, I'm delighted that you are my sister. Can you see how that gives you extraordinary comfort? Doesn't that tell you just how valuable you are to Jesus? You might think that you've got no friends. You're, fine. you're in a new city, perhaps. It's really hard to get to know people. You might be feeling isolated. You might have a family that is genuinely difficult to engage with. You can know that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Not ashamed to call you his sister. 
He says, I'll declare your names, my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. That is the Lord Jesus' response, to sing. How extraordinary is the grace of Jesus towards us. Well, secondly, we see that Jesus has defeated the power of death, verses 14 through to 16. Through his incarnation, through his becoming like us, Jesus is able to destroy our ultimate enemy. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, that is us, so too, he, sorry, he too shared their humanity. What it literally says there is, since the children have flesh and blood, uh, he too shared the same things, is what it says. The same things, the flesh and the blood. The things that you have that make you human, he shares exactly the same things. He's not some kind of superhuman being, a superman or a spider-man. No, he's the same. Why? What was the purpose? So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Now, what's the link here? Well, the link between the devil, or or sometimes called Satan, and the power and death is this. Uh, Clearly, as we read through the scriptures, uh, it is the devil or, uh, or Satan who has brought sin to the human race. We read the story in Genesis 3. And the result of sin is death, for this is God's judgment upon sin. It's a righteous and and proper judgment against sin. Now, what's the power of death? Well, the power of death is we are are completely helpless to do anything about this. We are unable to stop ourselves from sinning, and we are unable to stop ourselves from dying. Now, St. Jude is full of very, very smart people who work and are studying really, really hard, Some of you are studying medicine and we need fantastic doctors and and nurses and those healthcare professionals, but there is not a single medical treatment that stops death in spite of all our great breakthroughs. And we've got people doing law and, and looking to work in business and government. There's not a single government or business policy that will stop people from dying. As smart and as capable as we are, we we need something else. There is there is no safe space from sin. And so to destroy Satan's power, we need to have a genuine and real way of destroying sin. That's the heart of the problem. And the text tells us here that it is by Jesus' death that he destroys the power of sin and death. How how does that work? Well, it's because of Jesus' death, he dies in our place. He bears the judgment for for our sin, which means we can have life. We are free from the power of sin. And this is what makes Christianity so radically different to every other religion. Every other religion says, do these things, please God enough, pray at these times, do the right deeds, God will accept you. Christianity says, you can't do it. It's a bit depressing, isn't it? But Jesus has. You can't stop yourself sinning and dying, but Jesus has taken your place so you can have life as a gift. That's the radical beauty of the gospel. 
And because Jesus has forgiven our sins, this, the power of sin and death is broken, which means we can approach God not in fear, but with hope. Because hope's the opposite to fear. Verse 15, we are set free from being enslaved to sin. All the weight and guilt and shame that can sit upon us as people who aren't perfect is lifted. Not because we're great or worked out the magic formula, but because Christ has died for us. And therefore, boldly, we can enter into God's presence, filled with hope and life. There's a great hymn called And Can It Be That I Should Gain, written by a guy called Charles Wesley, one of our, the great Christian hymn writers. And the third verse, oh, I'm not going to sing it, that's okay, I'm just going to read it out, <laughs> is this. The third verse says this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. And here's the really out there line. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown. Like, imagine entering the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, boldly and claiming a crown. How on earth can you do that? And he says, through Christ my own. Not through my own effort. Through Christ my own. He has defeated the power of death. Look to him. Thirdly, we see that Jesus is our great high priest. Verses 17 to 18. Notice in verse 16, once again, he jumps back to the angels. It's been a while since he spoke to angels. We want to get a bit more angel work in there before he keeps going on. Uh, surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. It's a way of saying God's people, the people of God. And he says, verse 17, For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. If he wants to help human beings, he needs to become like a human being in every way. See how he's emphasising this point again and again and again? In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, what is a priest? This is a very interesting question. I think culturally, different, different cultures have different ideas about priests. In Australia, in Melbourne, there's a bit of a residue of, of our Christian past about priests. Now, I'm a priest, Sam's a priest, Alex is a priest, and we have a number of priests on stuff. Reese is a priest. Uh, my dad is a priest. Uh, my grandfather is a priest, my father-in-law is a priest, my sister's father-in-law is a priest, my sister's brother-in-law is a priest, my cousin is a priest, and if you go back in time, there's a whole lot of priests loitering in the background of my family tree. Uh, the point I'm making, it's the family business in our family, right? You want a priest, talk to the four sides, we'll get you sorted. You want a wedding, a funeral, we've got, we got it covered, right? Uh, what is really funny is when I'm talking to someone in the street or the pub, and they finally realise I'm a priest, and they panic. It's, you can see it every time. If, they, if, if they're not a Christian, they panic. Maybe if they're Christian, they panic for different reasons. Anyway, uh, and what I think they're thinking is, have I sworn out loud in the last 10 minutes? That's what I think they're thinking most of the time. Have I done something offensive? Now, why do they think that? Because they think there's still a legacy that, that priests somehow have a special connection to God that everyone else hasn't got, a special sway with God. And, and my father-in-law is a very intelligent man. He would use that to his advantage. Uh, he was a, a priest in a country town, and he would have to go visit lots of parish sites away from the country town. 
Uh, and part of the challenges was those services were quite close together. So he would, in the Lord's work, have to perhaps gently exceed the speed limit in order to get there to serve the Lord in time. I'm not recommending you do this as a story, right? And he would hang up his robes, his priestly robes, on the, just inside the car, on the passenger side. So when the police pulled him over, they'd say, Oh, Father, no worries, you all. They'd put a good word in for the big guy upstairs with me, they'd say. And they'd, they'd send him off. Now, I'm not, re- I'm not suggesting you do that, or that salmon. I'm, I'm, this is not a moral question. It's more around the idea that people have this idea that priests in some way can intercede for you. And by the way, in the Old Testament, priests had this overt job. They were actually to represent God's people before God. And because they were to represent the people, they had to be a member of the people. They had to be a person, a human being. And they would intercede uh, by offering sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. That was part of what it meant to be an Old Testament priest. It was a lot of sacrifice, a lot of blood. Well, we're told here that Jesus is a high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, the high priest was a special category of priest. It was a distinguished rank, and I've got an artist impression. It's not an actual photo, of course. Uh, He had a particular job on what was called the Day of Atonement. The Jewish phrase is Yom Kippur. His job was to enter what was called the Holy of Holies, the most special place in the temple. It was the place where God dwelled in his terrifying holiness. And it was the only time a year that anyone was allowed in, just the high priest. And to prepare themselves, they had all these rituals, and they had to to wash themselves five times in a ritual bath. They had four changes of clothing or symbolising the fact that they needed to prepare themselves to meet with a holy God, for they are a sinful person. And then they had to offer sacrifices for themselves to cover their own sinfulness before they went in, to make atonement with God. And it was such a dangerous thing that they would tie a rope around the great high priest. So if something went wrong to face the fearsome holiness of God, they could pull him out. It's it's not a job for anybody. It's a terrifying job. But it was the way to bring atonement. You may have heard that word atonement. It is actually literally three English words that have been put together. It's not a made-up word, but it's, it's it's an idea from the Old Testament that's been turned into at one meant. So the idea that two parties are distant because of sin, they are brought together as one through the sacrifice, at one or atonement. That's the kind of how the English word has been created. But there was a problem with the high priest problem, is that both the priests and the things that they were sacrificing were not perfect. So what do you need? You need a perfect high priest and you need a perfect sacrifice for this to work. And what are we told in Hebrews? Well, Jesus is the faithful and merciful high priest. Unlike the other high priests who had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well as the people, Jesus does not need to offer a sacrifice for himself. He is holy and he is sinless. He is faithful. 
And unlike the high priest who offered ineffective animal sacrifices, Jesus himself offers what? The perfect sacrifice. That's what the cross is, himself. And so what we have in Jesus is someone who fulfills this amazing thing by saying, I am both the perfect high priest and I am the perfect sacrifice. I offer myself as the great high priest. And what this means, of course, is because it is perfect in the sense of complete, it's a sacrifice that is once for all. No need to come back to the temple every year. It is complete. It is finished. In fact, they are Jesus' words on the cross, aren't they? It is finished. And this is only possible because Jesus was like us in every way. If he is to represent us before God, He had to be completely and utterly human. Uh, A very famous church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, he said it very, very succinctly, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. He's talking about Jesus. That which he has not assumed, it's like, if there's any part of Jesus that wasn't human, then he has not healed. He has not saved. He has not rescued. He is not perfected. But in Jesus we have the perfect priest. Which means you can come to Jesus with your sin. You can come to him and you can be honest and open and know, and know for certain that his death has covered it. Two, notice that he is a merciful high priest. He understands what it is like to be a human being. Look at verse 18. Because he himself suffered he was tempted, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, Jesus understands what it is like to be tempted. Temptations aren't just kind of bouncing off him like, you know, some superhero, some Marvel character. He's not the Hulk when it comes to temptation. No, he genuinely feels it. Which means he can be sympathetic and he can be compassionate to you and me. He knows what it's like. He knows what you're going through. The temptations and stress that life brings that says, this would be so much easier if I just walked away. If I just went the way of this world. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by close friends. To have people talk behind his back. To be tempted and despair. This is is the man who cries, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. They are the words on Jesus' lips. And what this means is, we have a great high priest who is just like us, who is faithful Yes, he atones for our sins and merciful. He knows what it's like. He stands before God and pleads your case because he knows what it is like. And he's paid the price. So keep looking to him, says the author of the Hebrews. All this is possible because it is Jesus who is the radiance of God's glory, 
the exact representation of his being, who sustains all things by his word. How many stacks of paper high? All those things are, are maintained and sustained by Jesus' word. And he became flesh to destroy Satan and set us free from the power of sin and death to become our great high priest, to atone for our sins, to intercede for us, to understand us and help us in all situations. Therefore, brothers and sisters, keep looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing of this great pioneer and perfecter, but before we do, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, in Jesus we do have the infinite and terrifying glory of the one who has created and sustains this universe moment by moment. But in the Lord Jesus we also have the one who has stooped to share our humanity. We thank you that in Jesus we have the one who is the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. We thank you that in Jesus we have the one who has defeated the power of death. And we thank you that in Jesus we have our great high priest who has atoned for our sins. Father, help us to look to Jesus above all things. And in his precious name we pray. Amen.